All right, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Church history, come on in and grab a seat. And uh, the people that are the most holy, the people that love Jesus the most sit at the front. So I'm closing my eyes so I don't see who that is, but I just wanna, I don't wanna guilt you. I just, that's not in the Bible what I just said, but it's probably true as well. So uh, let me open us in a word of prayer and then I'll tell you what we are studying today. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are good and we just ask for grace. As we uh, gather to worship you, we just have a lot of things going on and so we just pray that you would help us with whatever uh, anxieties we may have, whether they're marriage-related or health-related or you know, related to society or government or whatever it is, we confess that uh, you give us a peace that surpasses all understanding and so we pray for that for us, for our congregation. We thank you for today. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen. All right, we are studying church history in our theological equipping classes. If this is your first time with us, uh, at nine o'clock, we do theology, uh, and we, uh, we go a little bit uh, deeper into some of these topics. And this semester and next semester, we are going to be studying church history, and we've studied the early church, and now we are in the Middle Ages. Okay, so there's really four periods of church history. There's the early church, the medieval church, the Reformation era, and then the modern era. And so right now we are in the second of those talking about the medieval church. And we've got some fun lessons coming up. We've got lessons like on the Crusades, which are going to be awesome. We've got lessons on uh, the corruption of the church and the papacy and all these kind of things. So uh, keep coming. This will get more and more fun as time goes on because we get closer and closer to today and we everyone loves talking about themselves. So the more these things start to make sense, the closer we get to today, the more you will enjoy it. Today though, we're going to be talking about the medieval church, okay? So uh, whether it's called the Middle Ages or the medieval church, those terms mean the same thing. Medieval, medi means middle, and ev is like an age or an era. So we're studying the Middle Ages and uh, the medieval church uh, today and so uh, we've got a lot to go over. This is a fascinating period. I, I love love studying and learning about the Middle Ages. I don't want to live during that time, okay? If you want to know what time of church history I want to live, right now, where if I get a blister, it doesn't get infected and I die, okay? So life is good now. As hard as your life is, we have medicine and we have anesthesia and we have all these kind of things. So we're going to be talking about the medieval church today. Should be a lot of fun. First of all, let's talk about what life would have been like for you had you lived during the time of the medieval church. So imagine that you're a peasant, you live out in let's say England or France or somewhere like this, and you live during the Middle Ages. Let's talk about what life would have been like for you. First of all, you probably could not read. As late as 1500, 90% of men and 99% of women were illiterate. Okay? Only 10% of men and 1% of women could read is what that means. So most people cannot read at this time. So keep that in mind. You probably are not able to read. However, you could see better than previous generations because bone eyeglasses were invented during this time, okay? Look at all these modern, we have iPhones and we send people to space. Bone eyeglasses is just the the hit in the Middle Ages because now we can see things better than before. You get to rest on the Sabbath and about 50 holy days a year. Other than that, you're typically working, probably in agriculture, Despite what you might expect, you actually probably had somewhat healthy teeth because sugar was not widely available at this point. So when we think of people in the Middle Ages, we think of them having those kind of Monty Python teeth, and uh, that might not be the case. Because you didn't eat a lot of sugar, though the modern-day toothbrush was not invented till much later, your teeth were somewhat healthy because you didn't have much access to sugar. How tall are you? 5'7 is the height of the average male. That's about two inches shorter than the average American male. The average American male today is 5'9. So back then it would have been about 5'7, not a huge difference. You probably have scurvy because citrus fruit is not available. Scurvy is like this weird pirate disease where basically your gums bleed and your skin becomes blotchy and you bruise real easily. And they didn't know what caused that until they found out that pirates and such, people that did trade with uh, the Caribbean, were actually not having as much scurvy as other people. Why is that? It's because they had access to citrus fruits. You have to have vitamin C to fight off scurvy, but most people in Europe uh, don't have access to citrus fruits and vitamin C. How big are the villages you live in? Okay, so we think of a place like McKinney that has 200 and something thousand people, or we think of the DFW Metroplex, which has millions and millions of people. The average village has about 400 people. Okay, so that's smaller than Parkway. That's your village. You know everyone in your village. So about 400 people. Uh, One of the biggest cities, London, had only about 70,000 people. So London, one of the biggest cities, 70,000. To put that in perspective, today it has 10 million. You were probably involved in agriculture. 90% of people were farmers. So today you get to pick. You can go be an air conditioner repairman. 
You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can make music videos on YouTube and somehow become discovered and become famous. You have a bunch of job options. Back then, it's basically farming, okay? That's the main thing that you do. There's a saying in the Middle Ages is that there are those who work, there are those who fight, and there are those who pray, meaning there are the agricultural tradesmen, maybe artisan class, those who work, those who fight are the knights, and then those who pray being the clergy. You basically belong to one of those three things, most of whom uh, belong to the working class. Hygiene in the Middle Ages, exactly like you would think, super gross, We have one record of how often a king would bathe, and a king would bathe once every three weeks, okay? Once every three weeks if you were a king. So the hygiene back then, super gross. Deodorant doesn't exist. When you realize that like Martin Luther's wife was smuggled out of her convent in a fish barrel, you start to think, gross, okay? So think about that. The next time you watch this medieval romance and there's some knight seeking out Guinevere or whatever it is, think they're both super gross, okay? Your barber, in addition to cutting your hair, could extract a tooth or amputate a limb. He was the town dentist and surgeon. You only had a 50% chance of making it to adulthood in the Middle Ages. 50% chance, okay? So remember that when everybody's freaked out because they think they're going to die, the Middle Ages would look on us and say, you cowards. 50% of us die before we even make it to adulthood. And then the Black Death, right, the bubonic plague, had a 60 to 80% death rate It killed one-third of Europe and half of London. You got these things called buboes. That's why it's called the bubonic plague, which are these swollen lumps in your body, and then you died in about three days. You got fever, and you died, and it killed people at a huge rate, okay? So just a reminder, COVID is real, and it's a pandemic by modern standards, but if we think of it historically, we are not in a pandemic, okay? A pandemic historically is something that kills like one out of four healthy young people, not one out of 40,000 healthy young people, okay? But that was the bubonic plague. That is what's going on, and uh, it, is, uh, it is not good. We've got a picture there in your notes of some people dying of bubonic plague. There you go. Happy Sunday, right? He is risen indeed. It's the day after, or the Sunday after Easter. Okay, Let's talk about uh, the Middle Ages. First of all, is it the Dark Ages? You'll sometimes hear it called the Dark Ages. It is not the Dark Ages. That is a pejorative term used by non-Christians. So for those that are not Christian, they think the ages where things are illumined, and hence why this is also called the Enlightenment, are before the Christian era, back when you had the pagan philosophers, you had Plato and you had Aristotle and you had the Roman Empire and you had Marcus Aurelius and all of that. That's one golden age. And then you have the dark ages where all this Christianity gets in there with their superstition and their anti-intellectualism. And then you have another time where things are enlightened, hence the enlightenment with the Renaissance and then the enlightenment and the flourishing of human learning. And so this term dark ages, we have a tendency to think of the medieval church as dark. That is a term used by non-Christians to refer to that area. It's not accurate. During the middle ages, there is a ton of human flourishing. There is a ton in the way of art and of music and of education and of all of that. It is a time of huge intellectual flourishing, okay? A few ways that we know this. First of all, during the Middle Ages, you got the invention of the university. You understand that our conception of a university does not start in world history until the Middle Ages. Before that, if you wanted to learn, you might go to a chapel, a cathedral school, you might go learn uh, with a priest or something like that, but the invention of the university happens during the Middle Ages, So anybody that thinks it's not academic has probably studied at a university and uh uh-oh, now they owe Christianity a debt, okay? You got the invention of the University of Bologna in uh, 1088 in Italy, one of the earliest. The University of Oxford, okay? It's over over a thousand years old. Think about that, or around a thousand years old. The United States is only 250 years old. But Oxford in uh, 1096 in England. The University of uh, Salamanca in 1134 in Spain. The University of Paris, which will become huge in the Middle Ages for theology, 1160 in France. The University of Cambridge, 1209 in England. And there's a picture there of uh, part of Oxford University. It's not one university like we think of in America where you go to a campus and that's the university. There are a bunch of colleges spread throughout the city and all together they're united and called Oxford University. That's the uh, Radcliffe Camera and All Souls College there at Oxford. You also had incredible intellectual and artistic figures during the Middle Ages. Lest, again, you think it's the Dark Ages, maybe you've heard of some of these names. Geoffrey Chaucer, our very own Jeff Ashley is named after this guy. That's why he spells his name weird, okay? Because Geoffrey Chaucer spelled his name weird. So Geoffrey Chaucer, the author of Canterbury Tales, huh? We all know about these stories. We've all seen The Knight's Tale or whatever it is. Uh, Marco Polo, that guy that invented the fun swimming pool game. 
uh, Anselm, Dante Alighieri, Thomas Aquinas, Roger Bacon, Peter Abelard, Peter Lombard, William of Ockham, Albertus Magnus, what's, what, that just means Albert the Great, Chrétien de Troyes, the author of Lancelot, or the Knight of the Cart, if you've ever read the uh, uh, Lancelot story, Geoffrey of Monmouth, the author of King Arthur and the Arthurian legends, right? You've got uh, Merlin and you've got all that kind of stuff going on. That's uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, also spells his name in the, uh, let's call it the fun way, the historic way. John Dunn Scotus, and others, okay? So some of these huge figures, and I didn't even mention people coming out uh, that would eventually you know, become famous in the Renaissance that come out of the Middle Ages, all these famous painters and sculptors and all the guys that the Ninja Turtles are named after. These are, this is all this flourishing going on in the Middle Ages, and so uh, don't think of it as the Dark Ages. What would church service have been like if you were a Christian in the Middle Ages? Here's what it would have been like. First of all, churches, in addition to being churches, were the hospitals and the schools of their day. Before the invention of the university, you would have to study at a cathedral school if you wanted to be someone who is learned. And also, they doubled as hospitals. You didn't have public hospitals like we have today, but rather, if somebody needed help, they would be taken care of by people there in the church, by men and women who are wanting to serve and care for those who are ailing a fever or whatever it might be. You didn't own a Bible. Okay? So the fact that you have a Bible probably with you right now, either in paper or on your phone, does not exist for most of church history. Okay? You do not own a Bible. You cannot afford a Bible. A lot of times trying to have a copy of the Bible could be illegal, especially if you're trying to translate it into the vernacular. It has to be the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Vulgate. So if you had a Bible, which you didn't, they were too expensive, if you had one, it would have been in Latin. And the problem is, not only can you not read Latin, you can't read at all. Remember, 90 to 99% of people are illiterate. And so even if you had a Bible, and you could read, if you couldn't read Latin, unless you had been trained in Latin, you could not read the Bible, okay? You learned to memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Ave Maria, and the Nicene Creed in Latin, but you didn't really know what you were saying. So you had learned these words to repeat as part of religious mantras growing up, but uh, you didn't actually know what you were saying, but you did know the Lord's Prayer, the Ave Maria, and the Nicene Creed in Latin by heart. There was a huge emphasis on religious relics. What are religious relics? They're these things, these items, that are attached to holy men and women that you would sometimes go on pilgrimage or you would have them there at your church. And the idea is that if you could pray in front of one of those relics, perhaps God would bless you, okay? Relics are like holy objects thought to bring grace because they're associated with a godly person. A relic might be something like the skull of John the Baptist, nails from the cross of Christ, a piece of the burning bush, drops of Christ's blood, the spear that pierced Christ's side, or even breast milk from the Virgin Mary. I kid you not, okay? So John Calvin once mocked this and quipped that churches claimed to have so many pieces of the cross that you could build an entire ship out of them, okay? So relics were a really important thing. Relics were an important thing where uh, in Luther's town there, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later on when we talk about uh, Luther. Most of the church service, you would kneel. Pews were not invented until the 15th century, but you would stand when the gospel is being read. So today, if you think, man, I love getting to sit down in this padded chair while the pastor has to stand, you're welcome. You're welcome. Through a lot of church history, the pastor would sit, and you would have to stand, or you would have to kneel. Pews not being invented till the 15th century. Men and women had to stay in separate places in the church, either with the men up front and the women towards the back, or the men on one side and the women on the other side. By the way, that's just not in Roman Catholicism. The Puritans and, and many other groups would separate men and women during church services, okay? And so you wouldn't actually be sitting with your family for most of church history. The men would be up front and the women in the back with the kids, or the men would be on one side and the women on uh, the other side, again, with the kids, the main focus of the church service was not the sermon. You may only hear a sermon about four times a year. The main service was the Eucharist, okay? So what would happen is, I'll be the Roman Catholic priest, okay? Take off my wedding ring because I'm single at this point if I'm a Roman Catholic priest. And what would happen is the service would be in Latin. You don't know what's going on. And then you would come forward and there would be railing right here to separate you, the gross laity, from me, the enlightened clergy, so you don't get all your sinnies on me, 
okay? And what would happen is you would take a knee and I would take a wafer and you would open your mouth and I would put the wafer on your tongue and you would let this dissolve. You don't get to partake of the wine. Do you know why? Because in the Middle Ages, there's this belief in transubstantiation that the bread and the wine are literally materially the blood and body of Jesus and we don't want to spill Jesus's blood on the floor. So I will take the wine on your behalf and you will take the bread. But don't worry, the, the whole Christ, body and blood, called concomitants. Body and blood are in both elements, okay? And so then you would kneel, you would partake of the communion, and you would go. You'll see that the reformers are going to change that. They're going to get rid of the railing because there's no separation between all all God's people are priests, the priesthood of the believer. They're going to allow the laity to partake of the wine. They're going to move the sermon to the center of the service, the preaching of the word, so we'll see that with the Reformation, but that's not how it was in the Middle Ages. Stained glass might be the only imagery that you would ever see in your lifetime, okay? Think about that, what I just said. You don't have a lot of pictures in your home. You don't have movie theaters. You don't have billboards. You see today more images in one day than someone in the Middle Ages would have seen their entire life. Just by you going on your phone, you have images. There are pictures. There are articles. There's Twitter. There's whatever. You see more images. You have TV. You have movies. You see more images in one day than someone in the Middle Ages would have seen their entire life. One of the few places they would have seen them is artwork in churches and primarily stained glass. Stained glass was a way to teach illiterate people, again, that's basically everybody, about the Bible as a type of medieval picture book. So you don't know how to read, so you're gonna have to learn when you go to church by looking at stained glass. And so, for example, if you saw this image from the Middle Ages of stained glass, what story is this? Who knows? You have a man there being brought to someone on a horse. Take a guess. The Good Samaritan, that's exactly right. See, you know. You look at the image and you think, I've heard something about uh, this, so this guy gets beat up, he's put on a horse, he's brought to the innkeeper, there's the image right there, okay? The church did most of the religious stuff for you, okay? A priest would basically be a Christian on your behalf. He would partake of the wine of communion, he would be the one who could read the Bible, and you also even had choirs that would worship on your behalf, okay? The Puritans, for example, got rid of choirs, they were too Catholic, they thought the people should sing, but in Roman Catholicism, you had choirs to even do the worshiping for you. Now, you might already know this, but the church was not in a great place spiritually during the Middle Ages. Luther describes monasteries as lice-infested dens of homosexuality. Many monks had secret concubines and sexual liaisons with nuns. Even popes had mistresses, okay? Uh, One of the great, you know, humanistic thinkers that uh, we're thankful to have because we wouldn't have had the Greek New Testament published first without him, Desiderius Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus being also an opponent of Luther. He was actually the son of a priest, which is interesting. It's not like being the son of a carpenter or something like this. If your dad is a priest, that's not a family business, okay? You're not allowed to get married if you're a Roman Catholic priest at this this time. Excuse me. Around the year 1409, you had three men all claiming to be Pope. So even though you're trying to follow the Pope, you don't know who he is. Which one do we follow? There was a church in Europe that had an eight-year-old boy leading the parish. In some places in Germany, only one in 14 churches had an actual pastor And in some churches in Switzerland, priests hadn't even read the entire New Testament. Not that they hadn't even read the entire Bible, they hadn't even read the entire New Testament. So the church is not in a great place in the Middle Ages. Jeff will talk more about that when he talks about the corruption of the church and the the papacy at that time. And the church and state were not separate, okay? The Pope will become the most powerful person in the world, more powerful than kings, etc. The crown worn by Pope Boniface, The eighth had 48 rubies, 72 sapphires, 49 emeralds, and 66 large pearls. It also had two gold rows showing that he was in charge of the church and the state. The Pope at this time could do what's called an interdiction, which is where he forbids any priest in your country from offering the sacraments. So if you don't understand what that means, a Pope could send an entire nation to hell. That's what they believed, okay? So if you don't do what the Pope wants, you're a king, fine, I'll just send France to hell. I'll send England to hell. That's how much power the Pope has in the Middle Ages. But more on that when we get to the papacy in a later lecture. Let's talk about some major theological discussions in the Middle Ages. So I said there's a lot of flourishing. What are, what are, the, what are some hot topic debates in Christianity right now? Throw one out there. Yes, social justice, all the social justice stuff is a hot topic with churches right now. What else? What's, a, what's, a, what's something, either socially or theologically? LGBTQ thing is a big debate in churches. Complementarian versus egalitarianism, Calvinism. These are the kind of things we debate today. Let's talk about some of the major things that they're debating going on in the Middle Ages. The first is this, grace and effort, okay? 
Remember, Augustine is this champion, this doctor of grace, that God and God alone saves you are born depraved. God does all the stuff. If you do some of the stuff, you rob God of glory. The medieval church has drifted at this point into semi-Pelagianism. They're not full-blown Pelagian, which is just workspace to you earn it. It's semi-Pelagian where, yes, Jesus will give you grace, but only if you do your part. Only if you do your part. So here's a famous phrase from the Middle Ages. Faciendibus quod in se est Deus non denegat gratiam. This means, and you see this occur a lot, God does not deny grace to the one or the man who does what is in him. Here's the view of grace in the Middle Ages. So the view of grace at Parkway is this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, you can't save yourself, you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, which only God allows you to do anyway, and he gives you mercy. Here's what it was thought, grace was thought to be in the Middle Ages. God will give you grace as long as you do your part first. So they would say, you don't save yourself. Obviously, Jesus dying on the cross, that's what saves you. And God will give you grace, but you have to do what is in sayest. You have to do what is in you. You have to do your best. So grace for them is not you being at zero and God just giving you all the stuff. It's you, once you've exhausted yourself, trying your best, God says, I see this person is doing their best. They can't earn it, so I'll give them grace. Do you see how that perverts the gospel? Do you see how that corrupts grace? Because here's the question. How do you ever know that you've done what's in you? How do you ever know that you've done your best? Couldn't you pray more? Couldn't you do more penance? Couldn't you help more people? Couldn't you give up more meals to give that food to the hungry? You see, this will drive Martin Luther crazy because if he's saying, wait, if God demands that I do my best and then he'll give me grace, how do I know that I've done my best? I sin, but then I sin again. So obviously that's not my best. And so this will become a major part of the Middle Ages. What they would say is that, that God deciding to bless human effort is not because human effort can actually merit something, but rather God has decided that if you do these things, he gives them value. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like a coin, okay? That coin represents something. The government has said this coin represents an amount of value. That piece of paper that a $100 bill is printed on is not worth very much. But the government has said, this is what we will, we will count it as valuable. That's what they're doing with your efforts in the Middle Ages, that they are counting that as valuable, okay? So that's a huge debate going on in the Middle Ages is grace and effort. So they don't hold Augustine's view of predestination. They don't hold Augustine's view of grace. This is why the reformers are gonna say, we're not just trumping you with the Bible. We're trumping you with your favorite theologian who is Augustine. Next, now we're gonna get a little philosophical. We're gonna get a little heady, shake the cobwebs out. There's a huge debate in the Middle Ages over what is called intellectualism versus voluntarism, okay? Let me read this and then I'll explain it. Does God declare an act good because his intellect sees that there is something intrinsically good about it, what's called intellectualism, or is something good for the sole reason that God's will declares it to be good, what's called voluntarism. This goes back to something actually that was written in Plato called the Euthyphro Dilemma, which is, and this is a quote from Plato, is the good loved by the gods because it's good, or is it good because it's loved by the gods? Here's what the question is they're debating. Is, when God says that murder, not righteous killing, but God says murder is wrong, is that because murder is inherently wrong? That when God makes humans and he gives us value, he just looks and realizes intellectually murder then has to be wrong? Or is the only reason that it's wrong because God says it's wrong? Okay, think about that for a second. Is God saying, is God looking down and saying, well, if humans are valuable, then killing one another unrighteously is bad, so murder must be wrong? Or is the only reason murder is wrong because God says it's wrong? Let me ask it this way. Had God said that we should assault each other, could God have done that in his word? Could God have said it is righteous to assault one another? And that would have been good because God is the standard of right and wrong, is he not? And so if he declares something to be the case, you don't get to appeal further back than God. So which one do you think it is? Does God declare something good because it's already good? And then the problem with that view, by the way, is it severely limits God. God, in a sense, had to give all the commands the way he did. He had to do that. He didn't have a choice. He didn't get to pick what he thinks humans should and shouldn't do. God, God's bound in that system. But if you go with the other system, voluntarism, and you say that God simply says these things are wrong and that's the only thing that makes them wrong, well, is God not arbitrary? Could God really have commanded us to sexually assault each other and that would have been an act of worship had God wanted to? 
Does God submit to some higher standard of good? Is he the standard of good? And if so, how is it not arbitrary? So this becomes a big debate in the Middle Ages. What's the correct answer? I'm not gonna tell you. Fight over it over lunch. That's our hope for you at Parkway, okay? Is that you go to your community group and you confess your sins and you do life on life and then you go to lunch and you're like, do you believe in voluntarism or intellectualism? And you're yelling and the waiter's like stressed out. That's what I want for you. That's my blessing for you, okay? I do think this is a very important question, by the way. It is a very important question. Next, another philosophical theme that is very much debated in the Middle Ages, and this one's even a little headier, and then it will get a little easier, so hang in there. Nominalism versus realism, okay? This is gonna go back to a debate between Plato and Aristotle. Let me explain the debate. Let's say, okay, I'm Zach. Everybody good with that so far? You accept that premise? I'm Zach. If I, you were to change my hair, okay, you were to change my hair color, would I still be Zach? Yes or no? Sure. If I were to lose my hair, would I still be Zach? If I possessed the quality of what Jean-Paul Sartre called embaldment, I would still be Zach, okay, even though I'm bald. Carl was still Carl when he had hair, okay? Uh, if I lost an arm, would I still be Zach? Yes. What if I was actually a woman, though? At that point, we say, wait a second, that seems to be too much of a change. You can still be Zach. You can still have Zachness and lose your hair or lose an arm or change whatever. But if you were a woman, I, I think that would get to the substance of what Zachness really is. Let me give you another example. Let's say I have a table and the table has four legs. Is that a table? Yes or no? Yes, good. That wasn't a trick question. Some of you are like, not today, Zach. <laughs> yes, a table with four legs is a table. Now let's say I take away one leg. Is it still a table if it has three legs? Sure, you can have a three-legged table. What if it only has two legs left? Is it still a table? Yes, because you can lean it up against a wall and have two legs and it still be a table, okay? Now, what if I take away the top part of it and I just have legs? Is that a table? No, okay. How did you know that? What, okay, so you say, because there's not a surface, how do you know that a table must have a surface to be a table? Okay, so it's based on function. So if I can take something else like, let's say a cat and I can balance a plate on it, is that now a table? Okay, so here's the question. Is there, it's an excellent table, it moves. It won't let you get your food, it's better than you, right? <laughs> here's the issue they're dealing with. Is there a form, which is like a universal standard definition of tableness that things conform to and would that exist even if there were no instantiations of that? There were no actual tables in reality. That's confusing. Let me say it another way. Do triangles exist even if we had no yield signs, even if we had no pizza, even if we had no Doritos? Those are all triangles. If we had none of those, would triangularity still exist? Yeah, yeah. why? Why do you think it would? How would you know that? Is it not the case that the only reason you know what a triangle is is because when you're a kid, your mom pointed to the shape and said triangle, and then you pointed to another shape and said triangle, and then you took all these individual cases of triangles and you summarized a perfect view of what a triangle should be? Or does the triangle already exist before you look at any of those individual cases? Which one is it? The realist says that these things exist in a certain way on a certain plane, even if there were no individual instances of these, meaning redness itself exists, even if there are no individual red objects, tomatoes, apples, stop signs, etc. Someone though, who's a nominalist says, no, it doesn't work that way. We see a stop sign and our mom says it's red. We see an apple, our mom says it's red. We see a tomato, our mom says it's red. And then after looking at the individual cases, we summarize and say, okay, I now know what redness is. So that's the debate. Do we look at these individual cases? Does redness only exist because there's a collection of red things in the world? Or would it exist if, even if there were no red things in the world? There would still be a category of redness that exists. It's a very difficult question. It is a big debate between Plato and Aristotle. It's a fascinating question. What Plato would say is this. He would say, okay, let's say you're a little kid and the very first time you see a horse, you say, daddy, what is that? And he says, it's a horse. How do you know that he's right? How would that first image ever connect in your mind? How do you know when he points at the horse, he doesn't mean the hoof or he doesn't mean scary animal or he doesn't mean brownness? How, do you, how did you know that there was tableness 
And when I described to you a table, you said, no, no. Yes. How did you do that? That's going to be a big debate in the Middle Ages. Does this blow your mind? It should. Philosophy's fantastic. Let me say it this way. I got in a debate with a guy one time over this. Can you think of a unicorn? This is what I do during the week. I get in debates with people over whether you can think of a unicorn. What do you think? Do you think you can think of a unicorn? You say, of course I can, Zach. And I would say, well, how can you think of something that doesn't exist? You're not thinking of a unicorn. You can't think of something that doesn't exist. Here's what you're doing. You're taking a horse, which does exist. Horses exist, tweet it. You're taking a horn, which does exist. You're taking the sparkles, which exist. And you're combining them in your mind and you're saying that's a unicorn, but there's no actual unicorn. You can't think of a unicorn because it doesn't exist. You can think of a horse and a horn and a blah, and you're combining them in your mind. The question is, does that same thing happen with a horse itself? The first time you think of a horse, how do you, how do, you do that if there's not already this category of hoarseness to which the concrete instantiation conforms? Okay, let's move on. Mariology is going to be very much developed in the Middle Ages, okay? This is developed rapidly by 590. So the veneration of Mary you don't have in the very early church. By the way, everybody likes Mary, right? I've heard some Protestants that are almost like anti-Mary. She's a great gal, okay? The, the one she bears in her womb is God himself. She's great. We don't venerate her, but we also shouldn't like be anti, like we don't hate her. She's, she's just a godly gal, okay? Thumbs up to Mary, but not what the Catholics do. Developed rapidly by 590, prayers for the saints began to be prayers to God through the saints. So this is a big part in Roman Catholicism. They don't worship saints, okay? They don't technically pray to saints. They ask saints to pray for them. The same way that if you're sick, you might call your grandma and say, grandma, you're a godly woman. Will you pray for me? I'm sick. That's what they're doing with saints, okay? They are saying, Saint Joseph, Saint Mary, you know, Saint whoever, would you please help us, pray for us, protect us? So they're asking them to intercede. They're not praying to them like they're God. Because of the Nestorian controversy, she was called the mother of God, which by the way, we, we all affirm. The phrase in the creeds that Mary is the mother of God does not mean that Mary is like up there with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Mary. That's not what mother of God means. It's not a statement about her. She's just a human, okay? It's a statement about the baby in her womb. Is the baby in her womb just a human, like Nestorius said, Or is the baby in her womb actually God? He's God. That's what the phrase mother of God means. But what happens is that gets taken to a weird extreme in the Middle Ages. Clement, Jerome, and Tertullian ascribed perpetual virginity to her even after uh, Christ's birth. Augustine had believed that she never committed any actual sins. By the 15th century, she was seen as the head of all the saints. Christians could venerate her. The term there is dulia, but not worship her, latreia. We talked a little bit about this in Greek Orthodoxy last week. Uh, the Catholics will say that venerating something is different than worshiping it. Dulia means to honor, venerate, give honor to, whereas latreia means to worship, hence the word idol, latre. Okay, that's where the term comes from. And so they would say, we don't worship Mary, we don't worship St. Michael, we don't worship whoever. What we do is we venerate them, we honor them. In the same way that if you were in front of a king, you would take a knee and you would fight for that king's honor, So that's what they're doing for her and for the saints. She greatly contributed to the treasury of merit. In Roman Catholicism, if, uh, if someone has a bunch of, think of it as good points. We all don't have enough good points to be saved, but there are some people like the saints, these super holy people, and they've stored up in like this heavenly bank account, what is called the treasury of merit. They've stored up in this heavenly bank account extra good points. That's really important for you because you need them. If God demands 100 good points to be saved, and you only have 50, right? Where are you going to get those other good points? Well, here's the good news. Mary and Peter and Paul and all these other people have extra good points to give away. Mary contributes a ton to that, okay? So take heart, those of you with low good points, okay? There is a whole bank account for you left. She was declared by some Catholics to be a co-redemptrix, okay? Someone also involved in redeeming mankind. But let me clarify what that does and doesn't mean. The Catholic Church does not see her as a second savior. Let me clarify it by one particular Catholic theologian. He says this, the title co-redemptrix refers to Mary's unique participation with and under her divine son, Jesus Christ, in the historic redemption of humanity. The prefix co comes from the Latin cum, which means with, The title co-redemptrix applied to the mother of Jesus never places Jesus on a level of equality with Jesus Christ, the divine Lord of all, in the saving process of humanity's redemption. Rather, here's what it does mean. 
It denotes Mary's singular and unique sharing with her son in the saving work of redemption for the human family. The mother of Jesus participates in the redemptive work of her savior son who alone could reconcile humanity with the father in his glorious divinity and humanity. Okay. Now, what, here's what, that, that's obviously all that's too far. We don't, hold, we don't venerate the saints. We don't ask the saints to pray for us. You know why? They can't hear us because they're dead. They're not God. They're not everywhere. Okay? We don't agree with that view of Mary as Protestants. But I think something that we should be more aware of is the important work that she has and that Jesus gets her, his humanity from her. Jesus has always had his deity. He gets his humanity from her. Okay, so there is a special thing going on there that, that, that uh, the humanity Jesus has, he gets solely from Mary. Okay? There's a picture of Mary right there by Italian painter Carlo Crivelli, circa 1480, called the Virgin with Child. Okay? She would not have looked anything like that. And look at that fat little baby Jesus. Look at those thighs. He's holding an apple. He's got curly red hair, all kinds of weird stuff going on. But there's a painting. There you go. You get Mary, especially the Virgin with Child, showing a lot uh, showing up a lot in medieval art, okay? You'll see that a lot in the Middle Ages. Sacramentalism. How many sacraments or ordinances, by the way, you can call them either term. I, I hear Protestants that get all fired up and think sacraments is not a great term. It's a great term, okay? How many sacraments or ordinances do we have in Protestantism? Two, what are they? Baptism and communion. If you think, what enduring signs these rituals has Jesus given us for the church to do. There's only two. There's a lot of other holy things we can do. We can serve one another, which is the idea of washing each other's feet. We can pray for one another. We can do all that. But as far as these things that help enact what they signify, these things that are these pictures of the gospel, Jesus has left two enduring ordinances, baptism, which is done once, and communion, okay? The Roman Catholic Church, though, has seven sacraments. These are part of the ways that they get the grace. So they'll say, you're saved by grace alone, yes and amen, but you don't get it through faith alone. That's Luther's new idea, which by the way is new in church history, but I think it's right. They would say God has the grace, but you get the grace through the sacraments. God puts a little bit of grace in the waters of baptism. He puts a little bit of grace in that wafer that you eat. He puts a little bit of grace, you know, as you say a Hail Mary or Our Father or something after you're confessing your sins. These seven sacraments though are baptism, Confirmation, because remember, they do infant baptism, so there's a time later on when you're finally old enough to say, I want to make this faith my own. Communion, the Eucharist. Holy orders, that's if you're a priest, okay? If you're a priest, it sounds like you're in the military. You get these holy orders. If you're not a priest, though, there's a sacrament for you that priests can't have, which is marriage. Marriage is a sacrament in Roman Catholicism. Penance, which is reconciliation. Penance is not just where you confess your sins, but you also you do things to help teach your heart what it should want. So a lot of Protestants don't understand penance and, and uh, confession. When they confess to a priest, the priest is not forgiving them for their sins. Only God can do that. What the priest is doing is speaking audibly God's voice, which the person cannot hear. They're having another person say, I hear you, God hears you, and God wants you to know that you're forgiven. And when it comes to penance, the idea is not just that I have to do these things to earn back God's love. It's rather if you are gluttonous. Let's say you eat too much. So you decide that you're going to fast as an act of penance. You're not just trying to earn back God's love. You're actually teaching your body what it should want. It's a spiritual exercise to help you want what is holy. And then extreme or final unction. It's kind of this final prayer that a priest does for you before you die. Okay? A final prayer that he does for you before you die. Let's talk about some theological development especially that happened in the case of transubstantiation, especially with communion. Okay, so we don't have time to do all this today. Real fast, there are four views of communion when Jesus says, this is my body. There are four views of that in Christianity, okay? The first is that it's just symbolic. That's probably what many of you grew up in. If you grew up Baptist, if you grew up Zwinglian, uh, you probably just thought that it was symbolic. There's Calvin's view that somehow you are really partaking of Christ, but in a mysterious way. Not materially, you're not crushing his skin with your teeth, but he's really there in a special way, which is why people are getting sick and dying in 1 Corinthians when they're not taking it properly. There's Luther's view that when you eat of the elements, you're eating four things, bread, wine, body, and blood. And then there's the Catholic view that when you eat of these elements, there's no more bread and wine. The bread and the wine goes away. It is only the body and blood of Christ. So let me just try to, to clarify this. Oh, there's too much. I'm gonna do this in my Aquinas lecture. I've decided. So wait, I'm gonna come back to transubstantiation a little more in my Aquinas lecture. Let me just give you a brief thing here. In Roman Catholic thinking, when the priest blesses the elements, okay? 
hoc est corpus meum. Okay, hocest corpus meum. This is my body. When he says that, when he blesses the elements, they are no longer bread and wine. Okay, they become the material, the literal, the physical body of Jesus and blood of Jesus. Don't let the fact that it smells like bread fool you. Don't let the fact that if you drink too much of Christ's blood, you'll get drunk fool you. When you are partaking of it, you are partaking of the physical material body of Jesus and his O positive blood or whatever. Maybe that's too universal. We're Calvinistic. His A negative blood, right, or whatever it is. You're partaking of that, literally, okay? Now, you would say, wait a second. Why does it still taste like bread? Why does it still taste like wine? They'll say that's its appearance. That's not its essence. That's not what it really is. When you put a stick in water, it looks bent. It's not really bent. You can't go by what your senses tell you. What it it really is is the body and blood of Christ. So that view is going to develop big time in the Middle Ages. Give you some quotes. Berengar of Tours. The bread and the wine which are placed on the altar are, after consecration, not only a sacrament, but the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that these are sensibly handled and broken by the hands of priests and crushed by the teeth of the faithful, not only sacramentally, but in reality. Pope Alexander III, in 1140, coined the phrase transubstantiation. What does that mean? The substance, what it really is, transes, which means changes, okay? That's why it's transubstantiation. The substance moves from bread and wine and it trans as it changes to the substance of the body and the blood. To refer to what happened at communion, in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council made transubstantiation official church doctrine. So that's important. For most of church history, the view of transubstantiation was not the official church position. That's important to keep in mind. Okay, you ever heard of the phrase hocus pocus? Like when it comes to witchcraft? You wanna know where that comes from? The phrase that the Catholics would say, hoc est corpus, mayhem, Hoc est corpus sounds like hocus pocus. And it is a term that Protestants used to mock Roman Catholic views of communion. So they'd say hoc est corpus. And so you see the Protestants sitting around having an ale saying those silly Catholics, they get up there, they're hocus pocus and then they eat Jesus, okay? So you see them mocking that. That's where that term comes from though. Scholasticism is a big thing in the Middle Ages, okay? Scholasticism. I'm gonna see if we have enough time for questions. I think we will. Scholasticism is, is, let me give you a good definition, okay? The attempt to rationalize theology in order to buttress faith with reason, okay? This is especially the case with Aristotle. So if you wanna summarize the Middle Ages, it's this. The Bible plus the philosophy of Aristotle, that's scholasticism. That's the Middle Ages, okay? This is why when someone like Galileo challenges and says that actually the the earth is not in the center of the solar system, that it's seen as heresy. Because when you've wedded Aristotle and uh, the Bible, Aristotle was very clear that the earth does not move. It's right here. The stars and stuff move around it, the sublunar world, or the the, uh, superlunar world. And so that's what's going on in the Middle Ages. So this is gonna lead to uh, a, a lot of intellectualism. Again, it's not the Dark Ages. This leads to people wanting to debate issues, think through all sides, consider objections, and create philosophical method for defining and defending faith. Sometimes Protestants define the Middle Ages as a bunch of old single guys at a university getting around, asking the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Okay, this irrelevant question. Now, a few things. One, they never debated that. We have no record of them debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. But I think that's a super important question. How does this non-spatial being, an angel, relate to space? The guy in the gospels who has a legion of demons in him. Are they physical? Are they like real tiny demons? Like a bunch of demons in them? Little tiny COVID demons? Is that what it is? Or are they not physical? If they're not physical, how can you see them? How can they interact with people? That's a very important question. But a lot of times people think, oh, what's going on in the Middle Ages is just a bunch of useless ivory tower debate. It's not. It's very, very important. If God is the God of all truth, there are no questions that are not important to him. Okay? So we should be free to pursue those different things. The most common systematic theology textbook, and really the first thing that could be called a systematic theology in church history, was Peter Lombard's Four Books of Sentences. It was the most commented on book in the Middle Ages after the Bible. The most read book in the Middle Ages after the Bible was The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. You also got, in the Middle Ages, huge philosophical defenses for the existence of God. This is a big thing that they're doing in the universities. Uh, We're gonna have a whole lesson on Anselm, and we're gonna have a whole lesson on Aquinas. Let me just give you a quote from each, though, real quick. Because effects 
always depend on some cause. And a cause must exist if its effect exists. It is therefore impossible that in the same manner and in the same way anything should be both the one which affects a change and the one that is changed. We do not find that anything is the efficient cause of itself. Nor is it possible for the thing would then be prior to itself, which is impossible. This is the kind of reasoning, even as you read that sentence, you're like, what is he saying? This is the kind of reasoning going on in the Middle Ages. He's giving a proof for God's existence, the cosmological argument. Uh, The cause of me is my parents. The cause of them is their parents. The cause of them is a chance meeting, you know, at a saloon. I don't know, probably not. Uh, Whatever it is. Eventually, what's that first cause that starts that chain of effects? It can't go back infinity or we would have never gotten to today. So what is that first cause? And Aquinas would say it's God. Or Anselm, as who defines God as a being greater than which none can be thought. Just an easy little definition there. If that than which a greater cannot be thought, can be thought of as not existing, this very thing than that which is greater cannot be thought is not that than which is greater cannot be thought. But this is contradictory. But how did he, the fool who denies God's existence, manage to say in his heart what he could not think? Or how is it that he was unable to think what he said in his heart. So you'll see all these fancy philosophical defenses for the existence of God, some of which have never been refuted, which is really interesting, okay? If you want more on that, we have a few lessons on the existence of God and proofs for that uh, on our apologetic series online. Almost done. The popularization of the fear of hell. Okay, now let me explain what I mean by that. Hell is real and hell is scary. This is not just like a Catholic thing. If you don't know Jesus, you will go to a place of conscious eternal torment for all eternity, No second chances, do not pass go, do not collect $200, it's awful. This is why it's so important that you know Jesus. This is why it's so important that you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus. He has to do the saving. You owe an infinite debt. Only one who's infinite can pay that for you. That's why you need to trust Jesus. So that's real. What happens in the Middle Ages though is instead of giving people that good news I just gave you, that grace, there's such a focus on hell. There's such a focus on fear. By the way, fear is a way to control people. Notice that with the media and politics. This is true in world history. Fear is a way to control people so that they trust you to deliver them from those fears, whether it's the government or whether it's the medieval Catholic church, okay? So there's this popularization of the fear of hell. So in Dante's Divine Comedy and his Infernum, his Inferno, he describes hell as having nine levels or nine circles. If you've ever heard, heard like the seventh circle of hell or the ninth circle of hell, this comes from Dante. The first level includes moral pagans and unbaptized Christians. It's limbo. It's not really hell yet, but people wander around in loneliness, okay? Number two is for people that committed the sins of lust. People are blown in a continual windstorm. So it's basically just like living in Texas. (laughs) Gluttony. People are freezing in a continual icy rain. So it's just like living in Texas back in February. Greed. People are forced to push big boulders around. Anger. People are engaged in an endless battle in a swamp. That one's awesome. Heresy, people are burned forever in stone coffins. That one's terrifying. Violence, people are made to drown in a lake of boiling blood. Eighth level of hell, fraud. People are endlessly tortured by being beaten by demons. And then the worst level of hell, the the darkest level is the ninth circle of hell, treachery. It is a vast frozen lake where the devil resides with the worst sinners like Judas. Okay? And people who, you know, take off their shoes on an airplane and, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. These kind of people. People that, yeah, never mind. Now, many of these levels are based on Dante's idea of the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. There you see a little picture of the nine, uh, nine levels of hell there. You see the stone coffins there. You see people pushing around big boulders. You see people blown in the wind, people wandering around. So you have this very popular, popular idea of, uh, <clears throat> of the fear of hell in the Middle Ages. I've included a section from John Milton's Paradise Lost. I realize he's a figure right after the Middle Ages, but a lot of his imagery comes from the Middle Ages. You can read that on your own because we don't have time. And then number nine, interpreting the Bible through a fourfold understanding called the quadriga, okay, called the quadriga. Let me ask you this question. Do you interpret all of the Bible literally? Yes or no? Which one? I'm hearing this. Yo. It's like it's the true-false test. You're taking a, you do this. You're taking a true-false test, and so you're just hoping that the teacher will kind of kind of give you, give you something, okay? Do you interpret all of the Bible allegorically or metaphorically? How do you interpret the Bible? Here's what is a big thing going on in the Middle Ages. They believe that for every text, or almost every text, not every text, there's a fourfold sense in which you should interpret it, okay? There is the literal meaning, the allegorical meaning, the moral meaning, and the anagogical meaning. What does that mean? 
okay? Let's take, they were reading in the Gospels, and it talks about the city Jerusalem. Okay, let's, let's apply this to each of those. The literal meaning of Jerusalem is what? A city in Palestine, okay? The allegorical meaning, which is how it relates to the new work of Christ, is the Christian church. This is the new Jerusalem as you, as you, uh, as you become part of the people of God. There's the moral meaning, also called the tropological, which is the human soul. So if Jesus enters Jerusalem, the literal meaning is he goes into Jerusalem. The allegorical meaning is that he founds the Christian church. The moral meaning is that he goes into the Christian soul. He goes into the human soul. And the anagogical or heavenly meaning, that would be the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. So as they're interpreting the Bible, it becomes very complex because they're not just looking for a literal meaning or whatever it is. They're looking for all four of these. Or, for example, if we did the story of David and Goliath with these four senses, here's what they would be. The literal meaning of the point is that David historically killed this big guy from Gath. The allegorical meaning is that Jesus destroyed the devil on the cross. The moral meaning is that we, like David, should trust God and battle against sin. And the anagogical meaning is the good ultimately triumphs over evil when Christ returns. Okay? So I want to end by reading a very famous example of the story of the Good Samaritan. We've seen the, we've seen the movie, right? We've seen the image now. We've seen the stained glass. Let's look at Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan. You know this story, right? The guy's beaten up by robbers and, you know, the holy guys skip him and there's the Samaritan, the heretics, that actually is the guy that helps him and takes him to the end. Okay, so let's look at how uh, Augustine interprets this story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant, obviously, right? Adam is obviously the one beaten up by the demons and left there. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality. Because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies, just like the moon, right? Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, that's Adam, namely of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead. Because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. He's using a play on words there. The binding of his wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. The being, uh, the being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where travelers return to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and of that which is to come. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, obviously. The supererogatory payment is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new, though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel. Let's pray, and then we'll answer some questions. Dear God, we thank you that you uh, have preserved your church, that even through the Middle Ages when things get a little weird, there were still people that loved you. There were people who believed the right things about you, who you are. There are people who uh, loved grace. There are people who trusted in the resurrection. And so at the time in history where probably your bride was not being very faithful, she's still your bride. And so we thank you for keeping her. Would you help us love you more in Christ's name? Amen.